This is Paul Nobles from Eat to Perform. And once again, we're here in part two where we're going to be talking about some of the strategies that you can use, um, especially if you are kind of in the middle of a dieting cycle, right? And how to navigate that. Um, so Susan is here. Susan, why don't you quickly walk people through where they can find you? I will walk people where they can find me. And then we'll we'll walk people through the, the strategies. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks, Paul. Um, I can be found uh, on my website at www.drskleiner.com, D-R-S-K-L-E-I-N-E-R.com. You can find me on Instagram at Power Eat. I'm on Twitter, but not very often, also at Power Eat. And uh, Facebook is Dr. Susan Kleiner. I don't think you mentioned New Power Eating. So if. Oh, if right. So you can get my books, The New Power Eating, The Good Mood Diet. I also just recently published a book. Uh, Melody Schoenfeld is the lead author. I just uh, helped her out a little bit. Uh, diet Lies and Weight Loss Myths, I think. It's a really good little book. Um, yeah. Uh, talking about a lot of the, you know, diet you know, ideas that, that recycle from generation to generation, yeah. as well as new ones. And so those are available either on my website, my books are available on my website, you can get all of the books uh, at your local bookstore or on any of the online um, bookstore uh, um, links. So, yeah. so, you know, you might find more information that way. Sure. So I'm Paul Nobles. I am the co-founder of Eat to Perform, and you can find me at eatperform.com. Uh, you know, if you're looking to um, take on coaching, uh, it's something that you can talk live to an actual Eat to Perform coach. We have our highest level coaches um, available for you to talk to and get specifics. We try to be very transparent about what you're experiencing. Um, I mean, when you're trying to take food away from someone, or even in the case of performance, where we're trying to put muscle on people, you know, they're both sides are challenging, right? And you have to walk into it as if it's a challenge. Okay, so what I wanted to do for this podcast, this might not even be that long. Um, which I'm sure people are like, yes, it'd be right. nice to a <laughs> 10 to 15 minute podcast. Um, but uh, I just wanted to walk people through the strategies. I've certainly done it in other podcasts, but I want to make sure that um, we cover it here because there are a lot of people that will sign up for something like Eat to Perform. And, you know, there's sort of attracted to, maybe they've been kind of overdoing things for a bit. And they're thinking to themselves, well, I'm not sure I want to sign up right now because the holidays are coming up and things of this nature. So why don't I walk you through how we kind of do it right now and why I think for a lot of people, it's actually pretty smart. So for one, if you were to sign up to something like Eat to Perform or really any place that that is going to run you through a, like a dieting cycle or a fat loss cycle. You have to plan for the holidays. And if somebody is putting you on a plan and they don't have a good plan for how you should navigate the holidays and to be completely honest with you, most don't, um, you're going to run into problems and I'll walk you through why you're going to run into problems because there's so many people that say, you know, it's really easy to be motivated on Sunday in October. Right. And then you think to yourself, I can get through that really difficult time. Yeah, you can't. I mean, it, 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 it's so rare. The only people that I see that do have success with it, are people that have high motivations, right? So people that are athletes, like for instance, the holidays are amazing for most athletes because it's out of season, right? 
um, most weightlifting meets, most, most running events, most uh, uh, Spartan, you know, trail races and stuff like that. Those are not scheduled during the holidays for a reason, right? And so if you are a high level person in that regard, man, it is a great time for, to do a cut. And usually if you have those kinds of motivations, you'll do well. For the people that don't, eventually they kind of cave. And, and I think that they cave for good reasons. I, I think what happens is, is that you're doing, during the holidays, you're, you're with your family, which you probably haven't seen in two years. Um, and you're having a good time and, and food and drink for almost all of us is a good time, right? And it's part of our joy process, right? The, I think Susan said this to me one, one time is like, they literally talk about breaking bread, right? Food is an active part of this process. So if somebody signs up as an example in October, I mean, one of the, one of the keys to eat and form that makes us so different from every other thing out there is that we don't just move calories down, we move them back to normal, right? And so if we look at somebody, let's say signed, signed up on Monday of last week, the process that that person goes through, they know if they're in the US, they're gonna be navigating Thanksgiving. But what's the benefit of Thanksgiving? We talked about this a, a little bit about in the last podcast that Thanksgiving is just one day, right? So you can navigate one day, typically that's not a problem. But then what do we do? Well, usually, well, <laughs> I would say, 90% of the time, we have very defined diet cycles, right? If you are just crushing it and losing weight, your coach will extend those diet cycles. But the one thing a coach will not do is allow you to bang your head against a rock if you're not losing weight, right? So we find that a six-week cycle, you can do real well in that scenario. And then we have like a reset. This is perfect for the holidays right? So in that reset, we move your calories back, not to normal, but to close to normal, right? So we're going, we're aiming for women for 2000 to 2200 calories, so depending on how active you are. And then for men, 25 to 2700. So not quite where you might be at your top end, but definitely enough so that you get kind of a little reprieve and you can fit some things in right? Now, does that mean that, you know, in that reset, you might have four or five days that are difficult to navigate? I can tell you this for a fact. It's much more difficult to navigate if your calories aren't at 2200. If your calories are at 2200, as an example, your body will actually respond pretty well to the caloric load that you take in on one of those four or five days. If your calories at 1200, it is not gonna do that, you know? And what happens at 1200 is that people tend to overreact to what happens and then, you know, all hell breaks loose in a lot of cases, or there's a lot of cases where there's a lot of guilt attached to, you know, not being rigid enough and, and things of that nature. That's, in my view, why you should be a little bit more, well, I, I think every program should do what we're doing in that instance, right? Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of people feel trapped because they don't really talk about reverse dieting a lot. They don't really talk about normalizing food a lot. And so they're really selling dieting. And so because they're selling dieting, they, they really kind of need to get you to diet. And so they might talk you off of, you know, the ledge a little bit on um, the days that you have. And this is one of the big reasons why a lot of programs talk a lot about 80% and, and things of this nature. And, and I get the scientific research that it's favorable and all that other stuff, but the majority of people that are dieting, in my view, 
should be getting in and getting out, right? And getting back to normal as fast as possible, right? It's these three to six month long dieting cycles or longer than that for a lot of people, right? So if, if as an example, let's say that your calories through another program might get down to a thousand, which in my view is extreme. Now you're kind of normal at 1400, right? That's not really normal. That's not where your body would prefer to be most of the time, right? So in a sense, if somebody brought you to the thousand and they were like, oh, you know what, let's go to 1400, we'll put you in maintenance. First of all, that's not maintenance. Um, and then second of all, um, it's not gonna allow you any room for the kind of flexibility that you need during the holidays, right? So like, you know, these diet programs that throw out a couple hundred calories, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, you, you were able to eat 14 more carrots, but is that really addressing things? You know, I mean, if you, if you really think about what programs like ours should be trying to do, and I think this is a good, good focus for us. I mean, I wish, you know, we have some amazing transformations. You go through our photos for the last eight, 10 years. It's super impressive. But when every, when I ask people, what is your eat to perform experience? They all say the same thing. It changed my relationship with food. And, and it used to bother me. I'm like, but yeah, the 40 pounds, what about the 40 pounds? You know? And what about like what you're doing in the gym now and all these other things? Nope. It's a relationship with food. And in some ways I'm really proud of that. I'm, I mean, I don't know, no qualifier. I'm really super proud of that. That that's not something that I went into this thinking was going to help people. And I'm glad it does. But if that doesn't end up being what the end game is. I think you're really missing out, right? Because I think what happens when you get too focused on the eating part or the performing part is that it doesn't really allow the freedom to just live life. You know, one of the best transformations in my life was moving from that place where, you know, I was trying to use all my food with performance and I was trying to constantly get better at exercise and things. All of that's great, right? Those things are great. Those are, those are good goals to have, right? But if you can't go to the holidays and be with your family, um, and, and I just wanna also make a case, and I'll use myself as an example. Part of the reason why Eat to Perform exists is because of my grandmother. My grandmother was a strong and capable woman, right? Um, I have a picture of me when I was four years old at the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans. And my grandmother's in the squat and you could just see she has strong legs. You know, um, she worked at a small engine shop. She carried like engines around and she was just a physically able person. And she got injured um, at her job and hurt her back and had to ultimately leave that job. And in that process, she started to struggle with weight. And in that process of struggling with weight, she became a lifelong dieter. She, I, I never saw my grandmother over consuming food unless, like we talked about in the last podcast, you know, uh, Oftentimes we would go on the weekends to McDonald's, right? It was like a special treat. I mean, because she was so underfed most of the time, those French fries never made it to our house. You know, she would just eat them, you know? And so, so she, she kind of lived this way where food was joyless, you know, and, and had a really bad relationship with food because of that injury, you know, and because, you know, PT back in the day or, or physical therapy back in the day, you know, probably wasn't what it is to, today, but also she probably didn't take it as serious as she could have, you know, and it fundamentally changed her relationship with food. But more importantly, to me, 
Is it changed my relationship with food? Is that every, you know, I need you to know that your kids see everything that you do, right? And if you're building a life that is super rigid without joy and things of this nature, you're going to affect the people that care about you, right? Because I, I, I loved, you know, my, my, some of my best moments with my grandmother was just her eating those French fries in her station wagon on the way. Cause, cause I felt that as a kid, I like, I, I wouldn't want to eat what she was eating, you know? And so the fact that she had that enjoyment, you know, didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't miss the fries. Right. I just wanted to see my grandmother happy. You know, so so I want you to think about that as we walk into the holidays. And I want you to think about, no, I can I can really be super rigid around my family. You know, I can really be super rigid. You know, in my family, um, it's very common. It's a very big family. My I'm a, I'm only child, but I live in Minnesota with my wife and, and her family. And they'll be pretty honest in telling you that most Christmases, they're either on a diet or off a diet, right? And when they're off a diet, they're not off a diet in the eat the reform way, right? They're off a diet in the over-consuming way, you know? And so what happens is, is that the people are on a diet and they're kind of miserable, they're getting kudos. And the person that's off a diet, right? Nobody's talking to them about how they're eating or how they look or anything of this nature. Susan actually talked about this a little bit kind of in a different way, but talking about pe people's diets, talking about people's appearances, talking about these, these things that are highly emotional for people, especially during the holidays, please let's get away from that. You know, um, you know, if you want to talk about your physical accomplishments and how much you're feeding those physical accomplishments and things of that nature, and you personally want to share that, Go right ahead. Um, and I, I suppose if you want to tell people that you're on a diet, it's certainly you're right. But I would argue against that for almost everyone, just because I think that there's a lot of reasons why diets fail, right? And it's not just about you weren't consistent or just about, I mean, there's deaths in the family, there, there's illness. I mean, we've all gone through these extreme last two years, you know, and, and we know now that things beyond our control take, take, take over. And so, so if you go to December and you tell everybody about this great diet, because you want to keep yourself accountable, that's another thing I'm not a, a big fan of, right? You started a diet two days ago, posted on Facebook. Don't do that. Right. Like, give yourself a chance. I, look, I'm, I own a diet company, right? One of the biggest reasons why people fail at dieting is because they never get started. On Sunday, they were highly motivated. By Wednesday, they, they, they realize they're not up for the challenge. Don't post on Monday that you started Eat to Perform, right? Because what's going to end up happening is, is you know, we all have a weird relationship with food. There'll be some people that say, great for you. There's going to be some people that say, not again, Marge, right? All these different things. Let's try and, 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 and figure out a way where we can navigate all of this in a healthy way, right? Um, so then I just want to finish it up because I know you have probably a lot of thoughts on, on all the things I'm kind of hitting on. Um, but then obviously the second round of fat loss. So for people that don't know this body to perform, um, typically it's, it's around a three month cycle can be longer if you're, if you're losing weight. Um, but for most people, that's kind of where things sort of start to stall out. Right. So six months, then three to four week reset or six weeks, three to four week reset, then another six weeks. And then by about that time, just judging from, 
everyone that we talked to and the groups and stuff like that, people are like four more days of the second round of fat loss. Right. And they're ready to be done and they're ready for food to come back. And I'm, like I said, proud of that. Right. I'm proud of the fact that, um, people view eat to perform in that way, but basically you just start, you know, at your convenience. I mean, even though I'm saying three to four weeks, there's, there's, there's really no reason it needs to be three to four weeks, right? If, if you wanted to start on, on February 1st, you certainly could, right? There's nothing stopping you, you know? The, all we're really trying to do is kind of keep you weight stable in that three to four week period. But if we can keep you weight stable in a six to eight week period, that's only gonna be favorable as your, for, for your metabolism, but also for when we, we, we bring in the deficit, right? For the second time. Okay, so that is how I would highly suggest, even if you're not doing need to perform, take a diet break, up your calories. You'll be shocked at how much better your body handles those calories. Thoughts, Susan? Oh, so many thoughts. So I, I really love the messaging about um, uh, being intentional about your language um, when you are with family, young folks, children, um, anyone who you might influence and, and you don't even know it because it is very powerful. This, this constant negative self-talk that is very common among friends or family members. I'm so fat. Uh, nothing works. I can never do this. Nothing. My body is broken. All these kinds of, of, of messages that have a huge impact on the people around you. Um, and, and, and it re only reinforces negative self-talk. I have to stop you for a second. And you, yeah, right? Right. I had, I had someone refer to a picture that was really a normal picture, right? It, it just wasn't as fit as they are now. And mm -hmm. they were at a beach in the, and she kind of jokingly said that she, was scared of being harpooned, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, that to me is, is like self-harm. Right. You know, like it, it what it's trying to do is kind of leverage that language so you never go back to that kind of normal picture. Right? right. I mean, like, like I understand that you're really super fit now, and you certainly have that option, you know. I do want to talk about that, but but I interrupted. So yeah, quickly. so it is. It is. It is self abusive. It is reinforcing all this, this sort of um, your your personal. It takes away your self efficacy. It takes away the idea that you can be successful at anything, and that all you are is a loser and a failure is what it reinforces. And and right, that's bad for you. And it's it's really bad for the people around you as well, because their little ears hear everything. And um, and so so I just wanted to to double down on that because I think it's very and, and not just at holiday time. Believe me, when you're talking on the phone to a friend and saying that your children are listening and and be very aware of what comes out of your mouth all the time. Um, even if you're trying to teach your children differently, what you say when you think they're not listening is very powerful because they are. Uh, the second thing is a little bit of a story and, uh, and to, to really, um, again, drive home the idea of the, the, the natural, our natural physiology and survival instincts, how they kick in when we are underfed. And, and how your drive to eat calorically dense foods, high in fat and high in, in sugar, you know, ultra processed foods that just get in and, and, and get digested quickly um, and, make, and, and make you feel really good really fast, but for a brief period of time, that that, that is not you being broken that when you are restricting your calories, you know, for at a high amount for extended period of time, um, it is a natural survival instinct to, to reach for those foods. And so a little story, and this is public, it was in our local newspaper many years ago, and I was just reminded of it by a couple of colleagues the other night. 
So I worked um, with Matt Hasselbeck a number of years ago. In fact, it was the year that um, the Seahawks went to the Super Bowl. So I am in Seattle and I worked uh, no longer, but I worked with the Seattle Seahawks and I was consulting with Matt Hasselbeck and I was brought in um, because as the lead quarterback, he was a target and he was getting injured a lot. He needed to put some muscle on, some weight on, and he was struggling with that. So I sat down with he and his wife and they were just lovely. And I took a, uh, a diet record from him. And what I learned is that he was basically eating about 1500 calories a day, all day long. And a quarterback typically does five workouts or training sessions a day between their, their own lifting, their uh, own sort of quarterback skills and drills, working out with the team on the field, and then, you know, working with the running backs and, and all, it just multiplies very quickly. So his caloric need to maintain body weight was around 5,000 calories a day, but, and he's a tall guy, but um, but he was eating around 1500 because he was always worried about getting an upset stomach. And so he wouldn't eat when the rest of the team really ate much and, and so on. And so when he got home every day, there was, he had anywhere between a quart and a half gallon of Haagen-Dazs that he consumed when he came home and then he would have dinner. He was known in the clubhouse as the ice cream boy. And when they would be uh, go on away games, immediately after the game on the plane coming home, they'd have five to six of those really big dove bars, um, ice cream dove bars that he would eat all of them. And so there was a wager in the clubhouse of what was gonna happen with him working with me. And was I gonna tell him to stop eating ice cream and he would fire me. So, <laughs> so it was kind of funny. Um, End of story is that, of course, he needed to eat more every day, that all day long. That was the ultimate goal. There was no way he was going to gain muscle if he was in constant calorie deficit. And so um, working with a lot of calorically dense smoothies, but things that would be quickly emptied from his stomach, supplements, and, and then the right kinds of foods throughout the day, we brought his calories up to, you know, around 3,500 to 4,000 by the time he got home for dinner, then he would have a good wholesome dinner. And I still said to him, and you can have a cup to a cup and a half of ice cream in the evening if you want, that's perfectly fine. That can be your evening snack. Because as I said, the last thing I was gonna do was take away all his ice cream. He would have said, you're a nice lady, but I'm not following your diet. So finally, uh, about a week and a half in, he called me and he said, Doc, is there a different snack I can have in the evening? I don't really even want that ice cream anymore. And so with all of the permission between me and his own body and his need to gain, to increase calories and gain mass, he could certainly eat that ice cream but he no longer craved it. And it is the story of how our body works. If you feed it, fully feed it, you will no longer just absolutely have an, an incredible drive to get the calories that you need. And certainly you can still have some of those treats, but as, as Paul is saying, allow yourself to be well-fueled going into this holiday time, then there's room for the treats if you want them, if there's the special thing that you want to eat at that time. Um, you can consume them and not be so widely outside your plan that you beat yourself up day after day. You just return to what you know what you're supposed to do. and. In the end, sometimes you may be more selective. You may be better able to stick to your plan. You may not even want quite so much. If you find that you are not going into these parties, it's such a deficit that you are really hungry and your body wants to feed itself. So 
So this is, you know, it's, it's such a good demonstration of the body working the way it's supposed to. And I think that we don't give our bodies credit that when we are overeating, we're almost, not always, I mean, there are mental and emotional issues with food, of course, but, but in lieu of those issues, um, there are survival mechanisms that the body is going to push physiologically for you to fuel yourself if you consistently for such long periods of time are deeply underfed. Yeah, one of the things that's kind of amazing, I mean, um, I mean, baseball is probably one of the sports where uh, baseball, golf, where you don't need to have optimal body composition to be right. good at the sport. Um, it's, it's probably better um, for career longevity and things of this nature. But one of the things that sort of surprises people, you know, when they see a picture from a locker room or something is that like, not everybody's ripped. They're muscular, but they're not ripped. And kind of what Susan's talking about with Matt Hasselbeck is that, you know, and this always concerned me about Drew Brees for the Saints is that he would get too restrictive with his diet, right? That his body composition was great, but then a 300 pound man lands on you and all of a sudden you're injured, you know? Right. And he did a good job. See, some of these people, you know, it just ends up being lucky that well, you have a great defensive line, right? Offensive line. Offensive line, yeah. You don't, you don't get, you don't get hurt, but it doesn't mean you're doing the right thing necessarily. Right. You know, I mean, when, when, when it got bad for Drew Brees, it got bad fast, right? Right. right. Um, and and I mean, all this talk with Tom Brady, you know, it's like okay, I get you, you know, uh, you like eating whole foods and I'm, and, but he, but he doesn't talk about amounts, you know, and I have a feeling it's high amounts, right? Oh, um, yeah. I know, I know in the case of like female CrossFitters, as an example, they feel pressure to report low numbers because they want to seem like other people, right? They want to seem like the average person. And so if you want to sell products, saying that you eat 4,500 calories a day as a female, you know, makes you unrelatable, sadly. Right. Yeah. Well, anyone who thinks there's truth in advertising. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so swampland in Florida for you. <laughs> yeah. The, um, but uh, yeah, I, I think, I think if you can go into the holidays, you know, with this kind of perspective, you know, it, it's like one of those things that kind of changes everything, you know, um, because, you know, when you realize other people are watching, when you realize you don't have to advertise that you're on a diet or that you're doing a plan. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the people, you know, one of the things I was thinking about um, have, have had people come to me and say, well, my, my kids are concerned about me logging my food. Right. And I was like, well, that's an easy answer is mommy's making sure that she, her body's getting enough food to fuel all the great things that I like to do every day. You know, it doesn't need to be about being less. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think some of, some of this, we have to, we have to sort of change, you know? Um, and, and, and oh, by the way, we're getting really good at it, you know, way better than you think. You know, if you look at Instagram as an example, you know, there's a lot of negatives about Facebook and Instagram and stuff like this. But one of the things that is actually pretty positive is that there's a lot of women lifting weights. Right. That did not happen 10 years ago. Right. I mean, I remember being at a, at a CrossFit event a, a couple of years ago and saying to my wife, this did not exist five years ago. Right. right. And right. and and it was just a field of women, all of which, you know, are are pulling a sled with like 400 pounds. It was like just this crazy exercise. And it's not just like two people it is like 40 people. And, right. and, and so, so we're, we're, we're doing better, right? There's, there's, there's messages getting out there. The fact that, you know, go look at my competitors compared to me, right? Go look at how many likes they have compared to me, right? 
So clearly my message resonates with a lot of people. That's a good thing. We should all be proud of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have a bit of ways to go, you know, but- I think, I think Paul, one of the other things that's really important that you also mentioned is that when you give yourself a little more grace with food, <laughs> it's kind of what we're talking about, you give yourself space for joy. And, and, and you are not, your, your vision is not so limited to the and so restricted and so only focused on what you can't eat next. Um, you start to think, what do I need to eat? Which is a much more positive message. But in these celebratory events, in a business meeting, which we know none of us have too many business meetings anymore where we're eating, um, but but any, any human interaction event often involves food because it is how it is a primitive place in our brain where we do make connections and relationships. It overlaps with food, as you said, because breaking bread with people, sharing sustenance is a very deep thing to do. So in these celebratory events, these, this holiday time, if you're not so freaked out about that you're sitting down and eating a piece of pie, you can actually look at the person who made that pie or who brought it from Costco and say, thank you. I'm really enjoying this. This is making my day. And if you wanna just eat the pudding part and leave the crust, you don't have to announce it, just do it. As, as Paul is saying, just do it or just or eat half of it if that's all you want. But, but let yourself experience the joy of sharing the food with other people. It is beyond putting it in your mouth and tasting it. It is well beyond that. Much more of the joy, the really true joy and satisfaction that changes the chemistry in your brain goes beyond the, the chemistry of the food itself and is highly influenced by the environment and the sharing with others and the experience of saying, you know, thank you, Auntie Jane, for making my favorite dessert. Instead of saying, oh no, I can't eat that. Thank you for making it anyways, I'm sorry. And then you're just gonna sneak it later because you wanted to eat it anyway. So, so let yourself experience the joy. And I will tell you in all likelihood, you will actually eat less because your satisfaction will be higher by actually having the emotional experience around it as well as just the physical taste. Especially if you weren't depriving yourself previous to that, right? Like that was right. one of the lessons that I had to learn about Thanksgiving was that, you know, like starving myself all the way up to when we ate right. Thanksgiving, you <laughs> just, you know, you would end up over consuming. So um, I was going to save this for um, the last podcast, but these last two um, have gone kind of long. We've got a lot of great topics, a lot of good things in. And I was going to save this for this other one, but I'm going to tag it to the end of this. So as everyone that follows Pickleball or uh, follows Eat to Form now knows, I am obsessed with Pickleball. Um, Part of when COVID happened, I started to make a list of the things that I wanted to act upon, right? And one of the things I wanted to act upon was just reaching out to people that I care about that I don't talk to often or don't see on Facebook, things of this nature. And I did that. Um, and that was really nice. Sometimes a little awkward, right? Because, you know, you have, we're living this really polarizing time, but what was interesting about it is that, and I, I really, really hope that, um, we can all realize that just because we're different or have different points of view, doesn't mean that we can't love those people right? Um, Intensely, you know, and be with them and, and enjoy 
our time with them. Um, because, you know, like, uh, you know, just because my uncle says weird things doesn't mean that he wasn't a really special part of my life when I was a young person. And so, so he could say all the wacky things he wants to say right now, but, you know, he, he still holds a really special place in my heart. The other thing that as we've come out of COVID, I'm not sure that we have, right? So, you know, it kind of depends on your opinion on that. But as we're starting to, to things are starting to normalize. Live with it. <laughs> yeah. As we're starting to live with it. One of the things that I started, I, I wanted to do is I wanted to make the connection with the overall community. And so the way that I thought to do that was if I thought something, I would say it if it was positive, right? Um, and, and what was interesting about it is that like, once you started to put these positive things into the atmosphere, you kind of quit looking for negative things, right? And I, I would love to tell you that, you know, I never think of negative things and, and I'm just like this angel all the time, but no, I, I, I am like most people. If I allow myself to, um, consume negative information or be, get really obsessed in my head about various things um, that that it can consume me. And so as I started to say, wow, like that is a great dress. Where'd you get it? You know, um, or man, you know, the way that you said that was pretty special, you know, or, you know, um, just you bring a level of energy to this event every single time. And, and I just wanted you to know, I appreciate that, right? That kind of thing. And when you do it and you practice it and it's an exercise, it becomes a thing. When I first started doing pickleball, um, I'm a very competitive person, right? And, 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 don't let me forget that the main point of this is, is the self-talk, right? Okay. Because, because as I started to look for the positives in other people, what shocked me was the impact that it had on me, the impact that I started to look at, right? And I'm, once again, I'm not perfect at this. I'm moving in this direction. But what I started to do was kind of give myself grace and forgiveness and, and, and realize that, you know, failure is just information, that kind of thing. Right. So a very competitive person, um, pickleball kind of filled that role for me a little, a little bit early on. And it, it, we had more than a few quiet car rides home with my wife. Let's just say that, right? <laughs> and so somehow when I went to California, um, the, the mood changed, the, the atmosphere changed. But the thing that changed mostly was that my wife and I were actively trying to work with other people. For her, you know, she always felt more pressure um, being around me because she knows that I'm competitive, right? Eventually that sort of changed by the end of our California trip and we started to play a lot more together, but we never had the opportunity to not play together before California, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and the other thing about California was that there were good people and there were people that there were people that are better than us. Then there were people that were worse than us and the people that were good, better than us. We were able to learn from those people, but the people that weren't as good, we viewed as almost like mentor, but also we would practice things that weren't going to embarrass them. Right. Mm -hmm we would practice placing the serve or we would practice all these different things. But the big thing that changed in me that I can see as I come back is that 
that positive thought process that I was having, um, I took to the pickleball court and, and I'm a very talkative person and everything that comes out of my mouth right now is building my partner up. You know, I might jokingly trash talk with the people on the other side, but even that tends to be self-deprecating, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, they like last night, you know, we were playing with this lady. I only met her 20 minutes ago. I was like, I've only known you 20 minutes and I hate you. <laughs> I can't stand the fact that you are crushing me so hard on this pickleball court, you know, and she laughed at it. She got the joke. Um, and it was funny, but it, you know, if you kind of think of it, that that's a positive thing. Like if you're, you're, you're trying to say in a funny way, a positive thing that you're playing so good that. I well, remember. and that talk is, it, it, it's powerful. So, you know, if you've ever sat courtside at an NBA game, you yeah. know, darn well, how impactful that trash talking is. Um, and, and sometimes it's done for your internal motivation as well. So I, had the great good fortune of not working. I mean, I worked with the Sonics. And so uh, during those years, Gary Payton yeah. was just, yeah. nobody could talk as much as Gary Payton, the glove. Um, I did not work one-on-one -on -one with Gary. He didn't need me, <laughs> but, yeah. but to be witness to that, he didn't only do it during the games. He yeah. did it all the time. The minute he stepped onto the court, his mouth did not stop. And during practice, he'd be, but, but it was different during practice. And that's what was so interesting. Like you said, mostly it was very much building up his teammates. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, I mean, not the words, good job, but really good job or watch out for this, or you got that, or, you know, I mean, none of, there was nothing that I could actually repeat but he was, yeah. well, <laughs> you know, a lot of, so, so that talk is, you know, he was, he was almost, I have to say, I, I wonder because he was so amazing. You couldn't have any self-talk going on because Gary was taking up the space. And yeah, so, that's interesting. right. But, but I mean, you know, it was the interesting. Other, yeah. The other thing about trash talk that a lot of people don't realize is that and, and almost every trash talker will tell you, it's not about you. It's about me. What I'm saying is, is I am holding myself to a standard by what I'm saying that makes me be better, mm. right? <laughs> and so it's kind of interesting in that regard. I could argue that they would be better off, you know, kind of building on positivity. Right. Um, but well, and sometimes he would, he would, you'd also, like I said, courtside, you could hear him switch and go, he'd go back and forth between, you know, amazing shot or, I mean, again, not those words in particular, but, yeah, right. you know, he'd be given positive reinforcement sometimes to an opposing teammate. Um, mostly he just never stopped talking. And I think it was, it almost, sometimes it was nonsense, but it was so disruptive to the other, to the other team, because they weren't used to hearing this, that you couldn't do your own internal dialogue while yeah. you're playing the game. It was fascinating to be around someone like that, but, but how he switched, like I said, during practice, his thing was a lot of you know, building others' confidence. But so kind of the finish the thought and then to finish the podcast is that, you know, while it's been nice to get out these positive messages and, you know, frankly, people like playing with me, right? <laughs> who doesn't like playing? Who like doesn't play with the guy that's building them up the whole time? But the biggest impact by far is not on them right? It's on me and it's on my self-talk and it's on how I treat myself now, right? And I never realized how much, you know, like that negative self-talk would, would sort of take me over. And, and, you know, it's one of these things that, you know, you're sort of maybe prideful about, right? Like you're prideful about the fact that you're 
good under pressure or things of this nature. I, I just don't, I just don't believe that, right? I don't believe that even people that are good under pressure, I think they would be better in a scenario where there's just this thought process that, that's always positive, mm-hmm. right? Like if, if, you, if you could choose, like for instance, people say haters are my motivators, right? And I'm like, no, they're not. You know, they're just not. I mean, like at the end of the day, if you have someone pushing you to be great, that person is almost always going to be a positive influence in your life, right? Negative influences in your life, you might think they've taken you far. I guarantee you love is taking you farther, mm-hmm. right? And so, so I just never have believed that. I've never believed that, um, you know, and, and if, you, if you want proof, think back to a hater, right? You might have to think back to someone a long time ago who was just a negative person, things of this nature. And you might not even remember their name. And the reason why you don't remember their name because they didn't have that big of an influence on you, right? I remember an old business partner of mine a long time ago, right? Um, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to put a ad in the newspaper just on how successful I become later on in life, right? Just to let him know I did it. And then about a year ago, it came up with the company and I could not remember his name. So whatever I thought was motivating me from that guy, mm-hmm. was not true, right? My, I have a loving family. I have a loving wife. I have loving outer family. Those people propelled me to be who I am, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the negatives, you sometimes have to fight through it, right? But the more that you spend time on the positive side, both with the outer people, but also with your self-talk, the better, better you are. Yeah, right. I would agree 100%. All right. Well, we will end on that note. It was great spending time with you once again. I think these were really useful. These are some of the most useful podcasts, I think, for people because that's the feedback that I get because it gives actionable ideas, right, that people can put in practice. And um, I think that's something that I like being a part of. So I appreciate you being here and have a great November. I'll talk to you at the end of it. Thanks, Paul. Happy Halloween. All right. You as well. Bye now. Bye.